Hello everyone, this is a Bridges of Meaning Discord conversation. I'm Job and today my guest is Deacon Eric. Hi Eric, what brings you to the Discord? Uh, well, I've uh, seen a few of uh, uh, Paul Vanderclay's videos on YouTube and I thought they were interesting. And um, it was just uh, last week he put out a particular video and uh, that really got my uh, curiosity going and in this video he mentioned this discord server which I didn't know existed and I thought um, especially with uh, the current uh, climate that we're in mm -hmm. uh, lockdowns and social distancing and all that that this would be uh, something interesting and engaging to be a uh, part of and so um, been lurking here for about I don't know five days now and uh, joined in with the discussion on friday and i thought it was a blast so um here i am yeah well welcome what, what's your impression been these last five days um you know it seems to uh to be a uh, a well moderated discussion community uh especially that you know i've already seen there's like some pretty uh but the, the two arguments that everybody's always mentioning is Trinitarianism versus <laughs> Unitarianism yeah. and, um, and uh, Universalism versus what traditional uh, doctrine on hell. So, um, so I was like, okay, if, if all of these uh, different opinions can coexist in the same room, then um, this is probably a uh, okay place to be. Yeah, we, we try to adhere to Peterson's rule nine, which is assume the other person knows something you don't. Mm. And I would say that most of the time it's, it's, it's pretty effective. We, yeah, it, it hasn't been perfect, but it's, it's been pretty good. So right, you, this is hardly uh, the comment section on a YouTube video. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of how this thing started. Like it, it grew out of the Paul Vanderclay video uh, comment community that's sort of formed in his uh, in his YouTube vids and people just noticed they kept seeing the same names having very let's just say amicable conversations and that's kind of how this thing started so because how, how did you, how, how did you find Paul oh boy um, so I think I was watching Jordan Peterson videos Mm -hmm. And he had that, um, what, a pastor's take on Jordan Peterson video. And I watched that and I'm like, okay, well, this guy, uh, he's doing something cool. So I became a subscriber. I don't, I don't, I'm not one of the guys who watches every one of his videos, but every once in a while, uh, one will pop up that, that kind of strikes my interest. Um, uh -huh. And so uh, that's, that's kind of how I encountered this orbit. And um yeah, I guess I guess I'm a part of this Discord server now. Yeah, I mean you are free to leave, but we like having you here. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I gotta walk another step back then because you came in through Peterson, and how did that happen? Boy, you know, um, right when he started getting big, there was just these um, uh, what Catholic articles uh, on you know different Catholic online places talking about Peterson reacting to him. You know, Bishop Barron did a, uh, a video on Jordan Peterson and um, it, uh, you know, I was like, okay, well, a lot of people are talking about this. I better go check them out. And then um, 
you know, I noticed when I was listening to him, just how encouraging uh, listening to him is just even on a psychological level, um, encouraging, you know, putting courage into the heart. Um, and, uh, and even though I was, you know, you hear these stories about people whose lives are now. trying to deal with, uh, still got your own cross to bear. And, uh, I found that, uh, listening, you've just on these little short clips, um, that was encouraging. And, and then I started diving into his, uh, his, his longer things, um, you know, like the biblical series mm -hmm. and, uh, maps of meaning lectures and all of that. Uh, and I thought, yeah, this guy, you know, he's, he's definitely a, a compelling speaker and, uh, He's got something worthwhile to say. So, um, so yeah, um, that's, that's kind of how I found him. This all started, what, two summers ago. Yeah. Summer of 2018. Right. Cause, uh, let's see, uh, you're a Catholic deacon, right? Correct. So, so what, what do you make of the biblical series? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think, Dr. Peterson was very clear on this point that um, he's doing a psychological reading of the Bible. And um, so that's obviously going to mean that he's going to be talking about a lot of things that are near and dear to his psychological theories. And he's going to be living out a lot of things that aren't relevant to his psychological series. Mm -hmm. So as long as you come into it with uh, the right framework, like, yeah, he's giving a uh, psychological reading of the Bible. Um, there's, you know, there's not much to be angry at him about or to be, you know, well, this was dumb. Why didn't he talk about, you know, how Isaac is an image of Christ bearing the, uh, the wood of the sacrifice on his back? And it's like, well, that's not how he was reading the Bible. Um, right. And moreover, uh, you know, certainly in the Catholic tradition, we've have got the, uh, the four senses of scripture. You've got the, uh, the literal sense on which the other three senses are based, uh, what the text says and means. And then you've got uh, like the moral sense, uh, what this means for our behavior, the um, analogical sense, what this means about the coming of Christ. So you get a lot of typology there. And uh, the anagogical sense of scripture is what does this mean for the um, the uh, life eternal uh, life beyond our final destination as humans. Mm. And you find out that because uh, Dr. Peterson is reading the Bible with an open mind and even his use of Jungian archetypes uh, that actually uh, generally is going to align him pretty well with uh, a lot of traditional moral interpretations. So that moral sense of scripture, how we should behave and um, one thing I found especially helpful with that is uh, his emphasis on uh, a positive moral norms versus negative moral norms. Negative moral norms being uh, thou shalt not and positive moral norms meaning thou shalt. Um, and the thing about positive moral norms is they're a lot trickier than negative moral norms. So you could look at uh, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's like, yep, I know exactly how to pull that one off. You know, you just don't do it. Uh, but you, um, you know, something like 
feed the hungry. Um, that's a, a, a moral norm given to us by Christ. It's like you run into immediate complications there because, uh, well, okay, feed the hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, where do I get the food? Like, right. that's a place you got to start. And then circumstances do I do it? Because a positive moral norm by its nature can't be done all the time because at some point you've got to sleep and attend to other things. So um, you, there's a level of prudence in there. And I think, um, you know, in uh, Catholic moral theology, there was this uh, movement in the 15th and 16th centuries all the way through um, the uh, late 20th century kind of an excessive rigorism and excessive legalism in moral theology. Um, and uh, this uh, is not what the church wants out of uh, the moral lives of Christians. It is not what, um, not what the doctrine of the Bible and uh, the doctrine of the fathers of the church and St. Thomas Aquinas uh, envisioned. So, um, in the 80s, there was this uh, book written, The Source of Christian Ethics by uh, Survey Pinkers, um, which really kind of rediscovered the moral tradition of the church apart from this excessive legalism. Um, and that's been hugely influential ever since. So that was just one thing I appreciated that wow. uh, Dr. Peterson brought out was, right. okay, positive moral norms are important. And this is a really useful framework for how you can live those out. Um, and I just think that's like, that's very helpful and uh, not necessarily something that's been attended to uh, at least recently in the history of the Catholic church. Okay. Well, this is all really interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> a number of these things I hadn't even thought about that way. How did you become a, a Catholic deacon? How did that happen? I can tell that story. Um, so I've grown up in a Catholic family. Um, uh, my mom and dad met in the Air Force and uh, they got married and I came along. Um, we were always uh, church going Catholics. Um, you know, that was never something that we admitted, uh, omitted. Um, at one point, I think I was about eight or nine years old. Uh, my dad had a very extended deployment to South Korea. Uh, to do uh, his job there. And uh, he became friends with this Polish missionary priest there. And that really um, drove him to the next level of uh, devotion and um, uh, of taking his commitments more seriously than he had been, although it was certainly evident that he had been taking them uh, rather seriously. So, um, you know, I noticed that kind of as a, as, as a kid, um, I maybe wasn't able to articulate it, but looking back, I can see things that were changing. And, um, you know, I was just, I was taking it seriously along with him uh, on account of his influence. So uh, by the time I was in seventh grade, uh, I was going to a Catholic school at the time and we were having a reconciliation service. And um, I went to uh, reconciliation and then uh, the sacrament of peasant penance and I, uh, you know, had done my, my penance afterwards and uh, was just sitting in the church, uh, pondering life, the universe and everything. 
and the idea popped into my head that I could maybe be a priest. And uh, I thought, you know, that actually sounded like an okay idea at the time. But, you know, you're in seventh grade and, um, you know, you're not in a position to really start moving forward towards that goal in a serious way. So uh, I, I go through the rest of my uh, education in the, in the primary school and the secondary school. And um, I kept on hearing this, this refrain coming out, um, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, you'd make a good priest, Eric. And, uh, you know, um, and it, you know, it wasn't only just, um, let's say, the, 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 the pious women at the parish, although they did certainly say that, but it was... You know, every once in a while, I'd hear it from my, one of my buddies at school, and it's like, whoa, holy mackerel, that's, uh, it's like coming in from two very different sources here. Mm. And so by the time I got to be a junior in high school, uh, people were asking me a very annoying question, uh, what are you doing after high school? And I didn't know yet. Um, I had this priesthood thing in mind, but I, you know... retreat um and uh at that point i really started taking it seriously um uh, thinking about it thinking about it a uh, couple months go by that was in the summer uh, i'm starting to get to go back into school going to confession with uh with the priest of our diocese mm -hmm. and i just kind of mentioned this to him and um he really challenged me to uh to make a more concerted effort to pray about it rather than just. Apple for a certain amount of time, or at least you, trying to pray. You popped out and there I, for a bit. You, you, you dropped out a bit. Your, your, oh. uh, your priest said that you should make a concerted effort to pray about it. Yeah, and so I did. Um, I was going to a Catholic school, and I would go into the uh, the chapel to uh, to pray. And uh, by about October of my senior year of high school, I I had decided that uh, going to seminary was the right option. Um, and the thing about going to Catholic seminary, you know, obviously people uh, notice what a big commitment it is, mm. and uh, really, especially in the early stages, it's much more about discernment then oh i'm on the uh i'm on the the greased skids all the way to the priesthood here so i entered seminary you know 18 years old um um yeah this might work out for me and i know i've got at least eight years until i become a priest so um like god will tell me at some point during this um when i'm uh supposed to if i'm supposed to be a priest or not you know um, and you know, if I'm there at seminary for a year or two and I, I find out that it's, uh, it's not what God's calling me to, then great. I, I can transfer college, um, and find a nice young lady and, and live my life that way. Mm. Um, so I kept on going back to seminary, uh, until my fourth year of, uh, college seminary and, at, at kind of in the beginning of the semester there, I, uh, I just, I was just praying with uh, Isaiah chapter 35, uh, where uh, God's talking about the renewal he's going to bring to Israel and the, and the, um, the deserts springing up with water and new life uh, coming to the place that had been barren. And um, I just imagined that uh, as, as kind of a renewal of the faith in our time. 
And just this voice popped into my head, said, yes, and you're going to be a part of that as a priest. Really? And I was like, yeah, yeah. It was just, you know, it didn't, I didn't think it came from me. Um, so I was like, well, okay, I think that's my vocation right there. And so um, ever since then, it's just been kind of, yeah, this is where I'm headed. This is what God's calling me to be. And um, I guess at every stage of my uh, journey, I've been both given what I've needed when I needed it. And I've uh, discovered things that brought me joy that I wasn't expecting. Um, so it's really so far, you know, um, just as a, as a transitional deacon for about a year and a half now, um, it's been, uh, it's just been a joy, um, learning about these things, um, firsthand and, and having my first experience of real ministry is, it's just been, uh, just been excellent. Yeah, because I was going to ask whether seminary, because I have no idea what, what that's like, if it was at all what you expected. Um. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my, my expectations uh, at the age of 18 were, were a little off, and a lot of people have this um, expectation that they're going into like a, uh, a strict monastic house, right, where you know, long vigils, long, long, long hours <laughs> of prayer, uh, fasting and penance, and uh, everybody you, you meet there, it's just going to be super grave and serious all the time. Mm. And then I, I found out that um, I was not, in fact, going to live with a community of robots, uh, that these were... We're having some audio issues where you drop out once in a while. Yeah, I can no longer hear you. All right. Um, I'm going to pop out, pop back in, see if that fixes it. One, two, one, two. Testing one, two, three. Okay, yeah, okay. I, I missed a whole bunch. Um, you, you, I don't know, this, this is, sometimes this thing is unreliable. I'll, I'll just cut it out in post. Um, you said you weren't ending up in a place uh, inhabited by robots. Right, right. They were ordinary uh, fellas who were just trying to, uh, at the seminary, just trying to uh, follow God's will. Uh, and that was exactly the same boat that I was in. Um, yeah. And, uh, I found out that I, uh, I wasn't looking forward to studying philosophy. I found out that I really enjoyed it. And, um, I found out that I also enjoyed, uh, learning Latin too, which is where a lot of guys uh, really struggle. But, you know, I would like save my Latin work for a, for a Sunday afternoon, you know, the Lord's day, because I just, <laughs> I just enjoyed doing it. Um, that was uh, that was unexpected, but uh, but certainly, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, seminary I thought was a good time, and then um, but by the end of it, I was like, okay, it's time to start getting out and doing ministry, uh, which I think is uh, what it should be like. And 
uh, how did that go? Because what do you mean when you say ministry? Oh, uh, I mean parish ministry, right? I'm uh, I'm studying to be a diocesan priest. And I have no idea what that means. <laughs> oh, sure. All right, I'll break it down. I was so, an atheist um, most of my life. Go easy on me. Okay, okay. Um, so the Catholic Church is very organized, um, and we break most of the population of the planet down by diocese. These are just uh, territorial divisions, and uh, every diocese will have a bishop. So, um, and that's that's kind of your 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 individual unit uh, in the church. So a diocesan priest is one who's connected to a particular territorial area. And so my diocese is the Diocese of Fargo, North Dakota. It covers the eastern half of the state of North Dakota. Uh, there's also uh, a religious priest. So that would be like a Franciscan or a Benedictine or a Jesuit. And they're not necessarily tied to a piece of territory. They're tied to a community. And so... Um, you know, you could be a Jesuit missionary in somewhere in a missionary part of the world and then go back to a university in Europe and teach there. Uh, so uh, the diocesan priests are much more uh, tied to the land, you could say. Um, so, yeah, and, and if you're becoming a diocesan priest, you're training for the mission that you're going out for and um, the, the mission by and large, of a diocesan priest is going to be parish ministry, uh, running a particular parish in the diocese. And there are other things that uh, priests do, but that's kind of, you know, your expectation should be, I'm going to be a, a pastor someday. Um, mm. And that's what I'm training for. What, what makes you want to do that? You know, um, I... When I started discerning the priesthood, um, there weren't any male religious orders that I was drawn to. Uh, I didn't particularly, so there aren't any in my diocese at all. There's no uh, friars or monks, uh, at least at the time I was I was uh, entering the seminary. Um, and I didn't have any connection with any religious communities. So, you know, I had this notion that I should become a priest. And so I just went for what I knew. And what I knew was um, uh, parish priests. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I found that the more I've gone through seminary, the more uh, attraction I've had spiritually to, uh, to parish ministry uh, versus, um, you know, teaching in a university with, uh, with an, uh, let's say, uh, uh, the Dominicans or, or uh, directly serving the poor as full-time ministry as I would with a Franciscan group. And so, um, so that, was just, that was just where I was drawn to. Um, I, never, I never seriously considered for a long period of time doing another type of ministry uh, rather than diocesan ministry. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's quite something. I I have no idea what that sort of life is like. I mean, also the way in which you grew up. Uh, I can. I mean, God must have just been an, an inescapable 
reality to you, basically uh, starting from your childhood, if I understand it correctly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was, um, gosh, I think some of my earliest memories are attending Sunday Mass and, um, and uh, my dad and I praying bedtime prayers uh, before, before, while I was in bed. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are kind of like my very, very early memories. I remember uh, before we opened presents on Christmas, my dad would read from the gospel according to Luke, um, even though we, we might have heard that at mass already. Um, and um, yeah, and then uh, well, when I was when I was young, there was a group of Catholic families uh on the military base where we lived uh you know being a military family and they would gather together every friday evening and pray the rosary and so um the rosary uh that's a uh that's a a set of prayers um dating back to the uh 10th or 11th century in europe it takes about 20 minutes uh to, to pray that set of prayers, and um it's really dedicated to uh understanding the mysteries of Christ's life through the, the, the lens of Mary and um, with Mary, uh, the Blessed Virgin, and um, so pondering the, the uh, Christ's life like that. And, um, and so, you know, it takes about 20 minutes and I'm like five or six, you know, I'm like, okay, hmm. when is this going to be done so I can go <laughs> upstairs and play with Matthew, you know? Right. Um, but, you know, I think, and it was, you know, it's kind of, you're kind of pushing a five or a six-year-old right there, right? But all the adults were uh, praying the rosary well um, and us kind of goofing off. It was like being at church again. Um, you know, there was an like expectation that you wouldn't be running around yelling. Um, and I, I think just that kind of, uh, that kind of example, um, you know, from my dad and from Matthew's dad and from, you know, everybody's dad and everybody's mom. And all the older kids, you know, it's like, okay, wow, this is, uh, this is something important. And uh, that was just kind of how that was uh, inculcated uh, into me. Hmm. <laughs> so another kind of, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Another, another kind of uh, important experience that I can look back at that really, uh, that really, really drew me to the faith was um, becoming an altar boy. And uh, so at this time, we were actually living uh, in Norway. Um, there's a small NATO base there. My dad was assigned there. And, um, you know, as, as you're probably well aware, Norway is not a particularly Catholic country. But in Stavanger, there was a, uh, there was a Catholic parish there. And we became involved in it. And um, I was about the right age to start altar serving, uh, uh, serving at the altar. And... Um, they had just gotten a young Norwegian priest uh, out of the seminary and he had studied in Rome and um, he was charged with, by the pastor with kind of reorganizing the altar, altar boys uh, because uh, it, it had kind of, you know, kind of overgrown things and, and it just kind of needed to be touched again. And, um, and so uh, my dad was actually pretty involved with that. And, uh, and so I was involved with it and I just loved being an altar boy, I, I loved the, uh, the rituals of mm. the church and, um, 
you know, I thought this was the first church I had ever been at that would use uh, incense uh, at every Sunday mass. And I thought that incense was just the best and we should always have it. Um, <laughs> even though I didn't, it was my older brothers who, uh, who were the ones who were uh, handling the thurible. Um, I wasn't uh, old enough to have one yet, but it was like, that was something I could look at and say, oh man, we could get there. Uh, so yeah, um, that was just a way uh, where the church became kind of more real to me. And then at that time, I also started noticing that uh, in our Sunday school, uh, I was always the guy who had all the answers. Um, uh, and so it was like, wow, like, you guys don't know these things? And it was like, they didn't, and I did. So obviously something had uh, had stuck there. Yeah, yeah, it, it sounds like it, it, it really worked for you and, and it, it, it appealed to you may, maybe at, at the transcendent level, who knows? It, I I don't know. I mean, I was raised in a uh, in a Protestant town, and uh, I did a couple of months be before the, the whole situation happened. I did go to a very small Catholic church in my village. Uh, they've got one that was built by Belgian refugees in World War One, and uh, by its location, you can tell where the old borders of the town are. Because that's where it's built. Uh, mm -hmm. That's where that's where the Protestants allowed the Catholics to build their church, <laughs> not yeah. in town, but totally near the end. And uh, it's just it's so different. It, yeah, uh, coming coming from a, a a Protestant church where, like, the church is just a building where the people come, and there's there's probably symbolism in there, but I can't see it very easily. And then you go into a Catholic church and. The symbolism is pretty uh, on the nose. Mm -hmm. it's, it's quite a bit of difference, but I, I really liked it. Like a lot of it was alien to me, but uh, I enjoyed it when I was there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that was, you know, it was precisely that symbolism that drew me in. Um, the the liturgy and the, the rituals and, you know, at the same time, uh, learning about the meaning behind the rituals and um and yeah i just i love it too um it's it's great having ha being a part of that tradition and um and uh you know realizing that the essential form of the mass uh goes all the way back to the time of the apostles because uh saint justin martyr uh second century writer uh, he was referencing the basic structure of mass uh, that we still follow today as um, being handed down from the apostles. So, hmm. so that's pretty cool, I think. I mean, obviously, you know, we're doing it in the vernacular now. Uh, we're not doing it in Greek or Latin. And uh, it, it, it necessarily will change over time. But, um, you know, in its essence, it's still the Lord's Supper where he becomes present to us in the most real sacramental manner possible. What, what do you mean by that? Right, right. So, um, you know, the Catholic doctrine of the real presence of the Eucharist, um, by and large, the exact same as the uh, Orthodox doctrine that um, the 
bread and the wine at mass are transformed in a um, in a spiritual sacramental way uh, into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ himself. And that when we receive uh, what by all physical and even possible scientific measurements appear to be bread and wine are uh, in their true substance have become the body and blood of Christ. And we believe that that is the exact same Eucharist, the exact same uh, ritual that Jesus performed at the Last Supper and that he gave the apostles and their successors the ability to carry out this ritual meal and this sacrifice of, of the, this remembrance of the sacrifice of the cross uh, throughout the ages. Hmm. So you could see how that would, um, having a very strong doctrine of the real presence would change uh, just sort of the idea of a church. Um, so even, let's say, the Lutherans, uh, Lutherans, at least traditionally, would believe in, in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but they would say that it begins uh, at the... Uh, during the uh, the liturgy that they perform, and then when the liturgy is done, uh, the real presence passes out of the bread, and so it's no longer uh, Christ's body and blood, but it is it, it returns to being ordinary bread. Um, so you, I I don't think you would have a tabernacle where the Eucharist is reserved in a in a traditional Lutheran parish, although you might want to consult actual Lutherans on that point. There, there is um, a YouTube channel where a Protestant guy talks to other denominations, and I think he goes to a Lutheran church where they have a tabernacle. Okay, but th so maybe some of them do it. Right, uh, but that's obviously a very different message that um, this isn't merely a place where Christians gather, but this is in a very real way, the house of God on earth, his temple. Um, and it's such strong symbolism that, uh, that God himself actually is there in a sacramental manner, um, which is, you know, a very direct, direct access to his divinity. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. What what do you make of, uh, so, I mean, I'm here because of Peterson, basically, and I started to uh, look at religion again because of Peterson, and through Peterson I found Fender Clay, uh, etc. What do you make of what Peterson's doing, and, and how that's affecting people's interest in religion? Right, um, you know, there's never uh, a bad time to ask a good question, right? And... Um, what Peterson, I think, does well is he asks the right questions, you know, and he does so certainly uh, based on his psychology training. Um, and I know that can be, you know, frustrating when it's like, well, do you believe in the resurrection? And and he, he like, he doesn't have a, a binary yes or no. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, and, um, you know, 
certainly if uh, Christ's, if I didn't believe that Christ had been raised from the dead, I would not become a Catholic priest at all because uh, that would just be not the life I would choose. Um, so there's kind of like this, um, you know, it's, I'll say this, um, if somebody was claiming to be a Catholic preacher and saying the exact same things that Dr. Peterson was saying, I would think that they were no longer in alignment with the Christian tradition generally. But because he's speaking as a psychologist, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, he's a psychologist. He doesn't need to be, you know, firmly affirming the uh, the resurrection of Je the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Um, you know, that's not the questions he's asking. Um, so, um, you know, it does seem to be uh, uh, a force for good, I think, um, you know, just in terms of the people who have been able to uh, to live a better life on account of uh, what he's teaching. Um, I could certainly look at that and it's like, yeah, Boy, you've you've stopped drinking. You've uh, taken responsibility for your life. You've gotten act, your act together. It's like, you know, why wouldn't I be happy about that? And um, if this uh, psychologist is the one who's doing uh, bringing you there, well, that's great. Um, certainly, that's better than living a miserable, resentful life. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. Uh, but if. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to regard him as uh, as another incarnation of Christ because, uh, well, we, we've already had one and that was oh. enough. And, <laughs> no, no, that, that's that's not what I meant. It's more right to the degree that he, he at least brings some people back to at least an interest in the church. And I mean, yeah. like, I wonder, uh, have you experienced that around uh, your, uh, what was the term, uh, parish? Parish, yes, around my parish. Um, you know... Uh, the thing about, uh, so I'm in a, a rural parish in a rural diocese. So, um, hmm. so, you know, what's on people's minds right now is, um, what's on people's minds is, uh, we had a very wet fall in our region. And what that meant was that a lot of people had to leave crops out in the field and are economically, uh, suffering there. And if, um, and, uh, they weren't able to do their fall work in in the fall so they've got to do all their fall work in the fields in the spring and that is hard enough and we've had kind of a long drawn out end of winter section so, so that's where people's minds are around mm -hmm. here um by and large there is not an awful lot of um you know Jordan Peterson book clubs. Um, Understood. It's just, it's just, yeah. Um, so I know uh, uh, one of our parishioners, uh, he's, a, he's a rather younger guy, uh, a little older than I am. And, um, you know, he's married, he's got two kids. And, uh, you know, I would say, yeah, he probably, you know, is familiar with Jordan Peterson. Uh, there's another guy uh, a bit older, probably coming up near 60. Um, he reads a lot. Um, it's like, yeah, he's probably familiar with Jordan Peterson, but the greater bulk of our parishes, it's like that's uh, our parishioners is uh, that's not really uh, just a part of their world right now. And, you know, uh, rural communities are also um, 
I think tradition has more momentum out here. So even though, um, you know, certainly everywhere in the Catholic Church in the West, uh, we are struggling to retain our identity and we're uh, struggling with the most uh, effective ways to preach the gospel. And um, the result of that is, uh, and then secularization, mm -hmm. the result of those three forces and many others is going to be uh, a decline in attendance. But it's usually more accentuated the more urban you get, uh, rather than the rural communities seem to uh, to not have the same um, secularized effect. So I'll give you an example. Um, we've got a public high school here, and um, you go to the public high school Christmas concert, and they are singing Christian hymns, right? Mm-hmm. And if you were to go to, uh, let's say, Minneapolis to a public high school, um, if they sang Christian hymns, they would also be singing uh, secular secular Christmas songs. And, you know, they would, they would be very earnest about having a multi-cultural uh, uh, concert um, because of being a secular school rather than a religious school. And that's just not a concern around here because, you know, either everybody at the school is a Christian themselves or their parents are Christian and the whole community is Christian. You know, uh, you know, we've got Lutherans and United Methodist Church and uh, Presbyterians and Baptists, um, but we don't have a synagogue or a mosque or... I suppose I suppose there is a Freemasonic center here. Okay. Uh, so that would be the only um, the only non-Christian or even what incompatible with Christian uh, group that we would have. So um, it's just different out here. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Because you said you were in Fargo, right? Yeah, um, so that is the, the center of our uh, diocese, um, and that's where I grew up, or, or that's where I, I went to high school anyway, secondary school. And, um, and but, you know, if you're studying to be a priest for the Diocese of Fargo, North Dakota, you're anticipating that you are going to be doing ministry in a small town at some point because, you know, we've got, what, I think six cities that are large enough where the parishes would need a second priest to run them. And then lots of small towns where you're gonna have a two parish cluster or a three parish cluster and one priest serving uh, those two or three parishes. Um, that's just, that's what the expectation for ministry is. So so coming out to a small town, it's like, yep, this is, uh, this is this is what I signed up for. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have about uh, fifteen minutes left. Is there anything in particular you would like to talk about? Oh boy, um, don't have to. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot if you don't want. Yeah, well, I'm just wondering. Um, let's talk about my man, Saint Thomas Aquinas, right? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. Um, you know, we've got a, a code of canon law in the Catholic Church, just a basic uh, legal book on on how 
things are supposed to be run in the Catholic Church, and it's, you know, everything from proper administration of the sacraments to uh, how you're supposed to be handling money uh, to uh, just, you know, the different, what, different ways of being a Catholic, a lay Catholic, priest, uh, religious sister or brother, um, all that kind of things. And uh, there's only three people mentioned by name in the Code of Canon Law, and that is um, uh, Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. uh, his mother Mary, and St. Thomas Aquinas. And the Code of Canon Law uh, asks that seminarians be taught the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. And, um, and uh, he's just, um, you know, in the, we'll say, not progressive areas of the church, um, so I certainly would think of, uh, like the bishops in Germany and, uh, probably the bishops in your area, they would, they would be more in a, a, a progressive theological camp, uh, versus a more, uh, traditional theological camp. Um, Thomas Aquinas, he's, uh, he is the, uh, the teacher that we, we go with. And, and so it was really interesting on the, um, on the group chat yesterday, uh, just hearing some of the language, uh, can't remember the name of the fella but but they were just using this this language that i was so unfamiliar with and um you know uh, mediated frameworks or these kinds of things are very very uh, modern or postmodern categories and i i was just you know listening to us trying to understand it as like you know why can't you guys just be uh thomists because you, <laughs> you use much simpler more direct language um <laughs> Um, so yeah, he's just, uh, you know, if, if you want to know about, uh, what my major theological influences are and what the, uh, seminaries in my area of the world are by and large teaching, it's, it's the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. And, uh, and I, I was extremely blessed while I was in the seminary to, to have, uh, a very, high-level Thomist as one of our professors. And um, who, who was that? And I was, uh, his name's uh, Dr. Stephen Hip. Um, and um, yeah, he's just, um, he, he combines uh, a very astute intellect with, uh, with a deep love for Christ and his church. And, um, and it, it was not on. So his, classes were very often you know insights from studying thomas aquinas and um and uh making connections uh not only between you know let's say the uh the, the christology of thomas aquinas between his uh his, his teaching about christ and and let's say the uh, the ecclesiology of saint thomas aquinas and how uh he understands the relationship between christ and his church you know, you can make uh, connections between uh, different, uh, say, uh, specializations within theology and show how it's a organic and uh, interconnected whole. But I would, I would find myself um, taking these insights from my classroom into my prayer and that I, uh, I would, you know, something I learned in class would be a place where I could return to and actually 
uh, encounter God in a new way in prayer there. And so, um, you know, um, just, I just think he, his philosophy is, his philosophy and theology are, uh, the best framework that I've found. Um, and, and really, uh, something that I find, uh, very, very compelling about Thomism is its ability to integrate new information. Um, so I, you know, uh, we talked very early on in this program about, uh, Dr. Peterson and, uh, what my, ins my, my takeaway from his biblical series was his, uh, emphasis on the positive moral norms, um, the uh, how you should act in the world right. versus an uh, outrageous in, uh, insistence on how you shouldn't act in the world. And uh, I, I made a connection with um, uh, the Thomistic principle that uh, negative moral norms are binding always and everywhere, and that positive moral norms are binding always but not everywhere. Uh, because you might not be in a position to do a particular good deed at a particular time. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, just the way he encountered, uh, we could especially say uh, the stories about Abraham in the book of Genesis. Uh, that was uh, extremely interesting to me. Uh, because, you know, like old habits die hard. And the reason people have such an insistence on the negative moral norms is that they're just plain simpler to, uh, to deal with. Right. Um, right. And, um, boy, these, the, his, his, I've never heard anybody talk about Abraham as an archetypal hero. You know, uh, I've never, never heard that kind of Jungian Joseph Campbell, um, explanation of Abraham. And, um, how, you know, Abraham uh, leaves his father, his father's house and goes to the land of Ur and then everything is immediately chaotic and he has to sort his way through the chaos. It was like, wow, yeah, I'd never heard that. So it was uh, new insights. And then I think insights that mm -hmm. were valuable um, for the church and helping us, you know, have a, a way of speaking about positive moral norms that are that are well organized and um, precise, and something that people can actually live out. Um, and then, you know, I, I look at the doctrine of Thomas Aquinas. Mm -hmm. Now, I think uh, certainly in his time, um, the momentum of tradition was incredibly powerful, right? I think, uh, you know, the the 13th century in Europe is uh, highly uh, commonly regarded as the uh, the uh, apex of oh. medieval Christendom, and so um, how these insights that I was uh, that I was receiving from this twenty first century thinker were completely compatible with the way um, theology was being done in the Middle Ages. Um, not completely compatible, but in its in its general outlines, um, compatible with 
the way theology was done and even kind of uh, complementary on how moral theology was done in the Middle Ages. That's just uh, absolutely fascinating to me how something like that is possible. And um, yeah, so it's, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of wanted to, uh, to like talk to uh, uh, Jordan Peterson. I'm sure, I'm sure we would all uh, love <laughs> yeah. the opportunity to sit down and have a beer with him or, uh, you know, maybe a non-alcoholic beer, depending on your situation. <laughs> um, and, uh, and just, just shoot the breeze with him and, and, and talk, talk important matters. Um, Cause I think that that intersection between, uh, you know, classical Thomism and, and his kind of psychological theories would be incredibly fruitful. Um, yeah, that's an interesting yeah. idea. Yeah. So just to kind of, kind of relate, um, you know, what I learned in the seminary to, uh, and what I, I, I love and, and believe to be true to, uh, something that would be more commonly understood by the people on the server. Yeah. Speaking of that, you, you might like to talk to a member called uh, trip T R I P P. Uh, he's mm -hmm. big into, into Thomism and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he'd love to talk, talk to you about it. Uh, I'm currently, sure, but I'm, I'm, yeah, go ahead. I'm just honestly looking to talk with, um, you know, cause when I was in seminary, I lived in a building full of Thomists. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. So I, I, uh, I wouldn't, you know, certainly, um, certainly would like to, but I'm also, also interested in, uh, in having conversations with people who are coming from a different uh, perspective because it's kind of in the, the, the mixture and the clashing and the, the struggle between different worldviews that uh, new new truth, new articulations of the truth can be found. Hmm. Yeah, I I read a, uh, some work of Aquinas, at least well, uh, an interpretation of Aquinas in a book by Edward Fraser. I don't know if you know him. Yeah, yeah, I know a little bit about his work. I know some of his more polemic works. Um, Versus maybe his more aesthetic works, so so I, I know I know his argument books versus his uh, talking about what what book was it? I have uh, five proofs for the existence of God, by which he takes okay. Aquinas and Aristotle and Plotinus and uh, I think Augustine and Leibniz, um, and I have scholastic metaphysics. But to be okay. honest, that's okay. a bit so tough to get through. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember my first, uh, my first semester of real difficult philosophy, philosophy of nature. And that, that was the hardest test, that midterm was the hardest test I ever took in my life. Um, had hours of studying for it. And, uh, but I learned a lot. So, so I can, I can, I can understand that feeling of, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, but it is interesting. I mean, it's it's just this this whole different subject. Although I gotta say, in the first chapter, he first spends a long time explaining why scientism doesn't hold water, and then eventually he goes into scholasticism. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Um, well, we're we're nearing about end of time. Uh, Eric, I, I I loved hearing your story, man. Uh, I'm glad yeah, you could I find this place. Yeah, yeah, this, uh, this seems like it's, uh, it's a good place to be. And, uh, you know, if uh, anybody who, who listens to this, um, 
wants to have some kind of a conversation uh, right here on Discord. I uh, currently don't, I'm not being overwhelmed with work. And so uh, happy to have a discussion. Um, I, if I see something in one of the general chats I'll, uh, that I think I can talk about, I, I'll see if I can, uh, can contribute something there too. So awesome, man. Very yeah. All right. Well, uh, God bless Job. Yeah. Thank you. And I wish you the same and have a great day. You too. Bye.